If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, this is where we'll start. We're going to have a little bit of a different service um, today. We will uh, we'll have the message, and then when the message is over, as we're singing our closing hymn, um, we'll go ahead and, uh, I guess when we're finished with that, if we're going to need to have a members meeting when that's finished. So I'll, I'll let you know when that time is. And if you're not a member, if you'll just go to the lunchroom or wherever you want to go um, and just wait a few minutes before lunch starts, then um, we would appreciate if you would do that. If you are a member, then you need to be in here because we, we need you here. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Several years ago, we were preaching through this book, and I've said this enough that if you were here, you're going to remember it. The two major themes that run through the first half of Ephesians that are established in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are... are, these realities that for the believer, for those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ, chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 describes this fact that you have been united to Jesus Christ, that you were in Him before the foundation of the world, you've been placed in Him before the foundation of the world, that if you are in Christ then you've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, that you've received redemption, you've received forgiveness, you've received wisdom, you've received insight, and so forth and so on. Chapter 2 would articulate the experiential side of this. You've been quickened. At one point you were dead, but you've been made alive. But before chapter 2 gets finished, describing what happens with the individual as they are brought from death to life, Paul, halfway through that chapter, begins to make this connection that if you've been united to Christ, then you've also been united to the body of Christ, or you've been united to the people of Christ. So that the Christian life, what it means to live in a way that is consistent with, in a way that is in line with God's agenda for every single born-again child of God, for every believer who professes faith in Christ and seeks to follow Christ, is that you are joined to a body of believers because you've been united to one another as far as your commonality of being united to Christ. And so at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul gives us a description. Really, he gives us several word pictures here as he's describing the fact that both Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in one body. And he says this in verse 19 as it relates to the Gentiles. He says, Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So we get four realities there that I want to talk about for the first half of this morning, or at least for the first portion of our time together this morning. Um, The the message this morning really is about uh, church discipline. It's about church discipline. But if we don't understand God's design for the church, then we certainly won't understand God's design as it relates to church discipline. And so the first thing that we want to um, establish It's implied in Ephesians chapter 2, but it's explicitly stated in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The first point is that Christ is building His church. Okay, The emphasis on that is this is the church of Jesus Christ. It belongs to Him, which means He's the one 
who should be calling the shots. It means if we're going to be faithful, then our preferences aside, we have to strive to hold the commitments that Christ holds. We have to make important the things that are important to him. And then we have to make sure we're not making mountains out of things that aren't important to him. So um, we want to do our best to stay right on the line of Scripture. And obviously, there's going to be some struggles in that as far as day to day. But there are some big categories to where it's just not that difficult to figure out what it is that Christ would want for His church. Now, it's become and has become, it's been this way for a while now, um, very, very unpopular uh, for churches to practice this whole um, scenario or this whole discipline of excommunication and disciplining members of the church. Uh, we talked about earlier in our prayer time that the whole concept and category of sin has been something that the culture has been trying to erase and has spent a whole lot of time and effort trying to erase so that repentance is not even a category that makes sense to the modern mind that's not informed by Scripture. So it shouldn't be a surprise that with that being the case where the categories for sin are all but erased, that church discipline would come across as some sort of a self-righteous, negative, judgmental um, action. Well, well, we'll get to this whenever we get to the second point of the message, but, but here's something that we just cannot do away with. Church discipline was God's idea. It wasn't something that a bunch of um, snooty country club Christians decided that they would begin to enforce. Now, it's been enforced in wrong ways and for wrong reasons in the past, I'm sure. There's no way to get around that. But the act itself, the fact that a church would be committed to this, is not a sign of arrogance and self-righteousness. As a matter of fact, Paul would make the opposite argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he would tell the Corinthian church, the reason you're not exercising church discipline in this particular scenario is because of your arrogance and because of your pride. And so, whenever we're thinking about how all this is understood biblically, we have to start, the ground level is, Jesus Christ is building His church. And He's building His church His way. Okay? Now, let's look for just a minute at the four uh, descriptions here that He gives at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 as it relates to the church. The Jews and Gentiles being brought together in one body to Christ. First, in verse uh, 19... Paul describes that the church is a body of fellow citizens of the household of God. So fellow citizens, that is, we're to be functioning together. We are citizens of the same kingdom, or as Paul would say here, we are citizens of the same household, the same family, the same body. So what that means is, what I do affects more than just me. And what you do affects more than just you. If you're a citizen of a country, if you're a citizen of, of any group, then just by definition, that means you are not autonomous. Okay? You are not uh, free to do just whatever it is that you want to do, however you would like to do it. Now, you're free to do that if you want to remove your citizenship and so forth and so on. But as long as you place yourself in a particular household or in a particular group as a citizen, then there are rules or laws or, or standards that apply. So he says, you're, you're fellow citizens. Now, I also say this about that, especially as it relates to the church. Baptists have been fighting for this from the very beginning. No one is ever coerced into becoming a member of the church. In other words, there's never external pressure from the church in the, uh, in the idea that you must do this. This is something that we're compelling you to do against your will. 
Okay, if we're consistent with Scripture, then we realize that only those who are, are the only candidates who, who are, are uh, legitimate candidates for church membership are those who are, number one, professing believers in Jesus Christ, and number two, those who are willingly bringing themselves under the authority of the church. Okay, so before we can ever get to this idea of church discipline, we have to understand every member of a local church is someone who has, at some point in time, willingly put themselves under the authority of Jesus Christ and under the authority of the church. Okay, that was something that was done long before we get to the point to where we're talking about discipline. Second, he says this, verse 20, he says that we are built upon Jesus Christ and His Word. That is, Christ is building His church and it's, it's being built upon. He calls, he calls it a foundation in verse 20. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, that foundation is just simply the foundation of the Word of God. Okay, the apostles were those, the prophets were those who were inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit. Those whom we receive the Word of God from and through. And then Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone. So this whole building imagery means that this is what binds us together. Okay, this is what is building up the church. And that is our commitment to Jesus Christ and our commitment to His Word. So if you want to see a church that is growing, those two things have to be in place. Okay. You find a body of believers who are not committed to the Word and who are not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He is committed to, but are committed to some other sort of a, you know, some other sort of a uh, program or some other sort of uh, agenda. You find a church that's in decline, no matter what the numbers are. Okay. A church that is being built by Christ is a church that's being built on His Word in a church that's being built for His glory, okay? because the commitment there to Him is present. And then it goes on to say, verse 21, in whom, that is Jesus Christ, all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. That is really what we just said, just a little clearer that in and through Jesus Christ and conformity to His Word, God's church is growing into something. And it's growing into a holy temple or a holy habitation is what it would be called in the next verse. The key word there is holy. Okay? God is serious about holiness. And when we're talking about holiness, it's important that we understand that for our purposes and what we're thinking about when we're thinking about holy from a practical standpoint holy doesn't mean sinless as far as the church goes the church really is a hospital for sinners if we if we think about it the way that scripture talks about it it's not a country club where we all get together and revel in our righteousness it's a place where sinners come confessing their sin, professing faith in Jesus Christ, and then striving together to live a life of faith and repentance. Okay, So when we think about holy, we're not thinking about sinlessness. But when we think about holy, we're also not talking about those who are willfully giving themselves over as habitual slaves to sin. Okay, it should be no surprise to anyone who's a member of a church that God expects you to repent. That should be no surprise. It should be no surprise that God expects that your manner of life would be such that as you find yourself struggling with sin, even as you find yourself tempted to be enslaved to sin, then you're expected to make use out of the provisions that the Lord has given you in the body, in the Word, through the Spirit, to be mortifying sin. That is, putting sin to death and not giving yourself over to it. 
at, at, at one time, that wouldn't be controversial at all. That would just be a given. But we live in a culture that is just so opposed to righteousness and holiness as it relates to what God is looking for that a statement like that is highly offensive. Sadly, highly offensive to many professing Christians. All we're saying when we're saying that we are dedicated to a life of holiness, we're simply saying what matters to God matters to us. That's all we're saying. What matters to God matters to us. And then this progression of fellow citizens that have been then been made citizens of the household of God who are built upon Jesus Christ and His Word, who are growing into a holy temple. All this is happening for a reason. Verse 22 gives us that reason. In whom ye also are builded together, that is, in whom ye also are being built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Okay, the ultimate goal that we've been brought together, that we're being conformed to the Word and conformed to the character of Christ, the ultimate goal here is that God might dwell among His people. Okay, That God would dwell in our midst. It reminds me, this language reminds me of what Paul would say later on in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. Paul's praying for the saints at Ephesus. He says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend, and you know how the rest of it goes. The, the phrase that I want is verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The word dwell there, it means to be at home in. That Christ might be at home in your hearts. This isn't talking about that you might be born again. It's not talking about regeneration and the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Paul's already talked about that. This is talking about your practical sanctification. And the picture that Paul's painting is one that's more like this. You think about, and this is a very common phrase that you hear, people say, you know what, I've really enjoyed being on vacation. It was fun, but you know, I am ready to get home. I'm ready to get back to my bed, ready to get back to my couch, just ready to get back to my home. Why? Because at your home, things are arranged just the way you want them. You're comfortable there. Your preferences are aligned to, um, well, to your liking. Okay. That's more along the picture of what Paul's talking about as far as Christ dwelling or being at home in your heart. It means that your heart is arranged in such a way that his preferences are your priority, that he can dwell there comfortably. Now, let me, let me give you another illustration of this. That would be one that helps us put two and two together sometimes. Let's just say, talking about my personal life, this is hypothetical. Let's just say um, that one day I call Abby and I say, Abby, put an extra plate out for dinner. We're having a guest. And she says, well, who is it? And I say, you know what? I have met this amazing person. She's my girlfriend. We've been spending a lot of time together. And she's incredible. You're really going to like her. I mean, she is amazing. You won't believe it. She's smart. She's witty. She's funny. She's beautiful. Set out an extra plate because I'm bringing her home for dinner. How do you think that would work out? You know how it would work out. And yet, whenever we ignore holiness, we're expecting God to turn a blind eye to something we would never tolerate in our own homes. 
that Christ would dwell in your heart, that He would be at home in your heart? I can tell you with that scenario, Abby wouldn't be at home in her home and I'd be finding a new home. Okay? That's the, that's the scenario. The scenario is, Lord, you can come and be part of this, but just know that the worship that you've demanded to be exclusively yours is being divided right now. And I am bringing my idol home and I'm asking you to bless it. And Christ says, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Well, as we think about God and the church, it doesn't work that way either. We must be continually striving in our personal lives through repentance and faith to live in such a way that Christ might be at home in our hearts. And this is something that, that gets lost sometimes, but this must be happening on a personal level before it can ever happen in a corporate level. You know what I mean when I say that? We cannot expect that this is going to be a church where Christ dwells when we come together corporately if it's made up of people who have put in absolutely zero thought, zero effort, and have zero concern for Christ dwelling in their personal hearts, in their personal lives at home. It just doesn't work that way. And so... When a church gets to a place to where the individuals have stopped concerning themselves with Christ being at home, dwelling in their hearts, then the New Testament, particularly Revelation chapter 2 verse 5 says, your candlestick is gone and Christ's presence leaves. That's just a... That's just a metaphor for saying the church dies. The church becomes what Brother Wallace used to call playing house for God. We get together, we go through the motions, we make ourselves feel good about what we're doing, but there's nothing real about it. And Christ has long gone. So Christ is building His church It's not a sentimental thing. It's a spiritual reality. And it's something that must be happening in the individual in order for it to be realized in the corporate body. And so Christ is building His church. Second point, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Not only is Christ building His church, but Christ is also purging His church. Okay, Christ is purging His church. And we see that here in 1 Corinthians 5. I want to read the chapter and then we'll go back and, and break it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together... And my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be stayed, may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as ye are unleavened 
For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world... But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetousness or an idolater or a railer or drunkard or extortioner. With such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person." So we have several principles here that help not just help us understand the passage, but helps us to understand the uh, what it is that we're doing and what it is as far as church discipline that's happening here. So this starts out with um, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Paul says there's a common report. What that means is everybody knows this is going on. It's not like it's a secret. It's not like this is something that um, somebody's doing in in uh, uh, you know undercover. Uh, someone's been able to conceal this. No one knows that it's happening. No, it's it's commonly reported. It's confirmed. This is a this is a public open sin that the entire church knows about and that the entire church is doing nothing about. And I think primarily, as Paul makes his argument, I think one of the arguments that he's going to make when he talks about how prideful they are is that they don't realize that what's happening here is that the church is publicly smearing the name of Christ in the mud by just sitting back and doing nothing. We, we prayed through this this morning, but... We are called to be salt and light in a dark and dying world. We are called to reflect the light of Christ. And one thing that Christ never does is just simply ignore hardened habitual sin. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, Christ doesn't ignore sin, period. He died for every single specific sin that His people have ever will and 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 uh, uh, had or will ever commit, and so if we're going to be salt and light, it's not that we're always on a sin hunt, but we know this: the most unloving thing you can do for someone who's enslaved to sin is sit back and say nothing about it. You realize what the end result of unrepentant sin is, don't you, as far as Scripture is concerned? It's everlasting judgment. That's what it is. And so one of the things that the church has been called to do, and you'll, you'll notice when Paul gets to the end of this chapter, he says, you let God judge the world. Okay? That's not your business. But it is your business to judge those that are within. In other words, it is your business to discern when something needs to be done and said. It is your business to go and try to help a brother who's caught in sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It is your business when something needs to be done. Something's going on. Now, the point I want to make from here is that most of the time, these commonly reported sins are sins that start out as a very private matter, maybe even a very secretive matter. But one of the things that is uh, um, repeatedly told us in Scripture, and honestly, one of the things that has repeatedly happened um, in this church and in others, but I would say particularly in this church, is that God has a way of exposing sin. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, God says, you be sure to know this, your sin will find you out. 
your sin will find you out. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we may hide our sin from everybody else, but there is nothing hidden from the eyes of God. He sees everything. Every thought, every action. And then Luke chapter 12 would tell us that the sin that we are busy trying to hide, if we're the Lord's, He's busy preparing to expose. Okay? He's not going to let us live in secret sin. As a matter of fact, there's going to come a day where everything that was done in secret will be exposed. Jesus says will be shouted from the housetop. In other words, everyone's going to know. What's the point of that? Well, the point of it is this. You know, a lot of times whenever we're thinking about church discipline, some people may be thinking in their minds, you know, we've got so-and-so that we're going to deal with, but you know, I know of a lot of other people who are living in ways that are not consistent with what Scripture would hold us to that would violate what you just mentioned in the first section. Well, I would say a couple of things to that. If you know of other people that are living that way, why haven't you said anything about it? Uh, because I don't know about it. And if I do, then it would, it'll be addressed. But the second thing I would say is this. If this is you, and you're living in secret sin right now, thinking that you're going to go and go and go and no one's going to find out, it's probably not going to be the case. As a matter of fact, the worst case scenario for you is that God leaves you alone in your secret sin. And it just becomes part of who you are. But if you're His, it's going to be exposed. It's going to be brought to light. And so it's a common report here. A common report that the church in Corinth, out of all the mess that they were in, Paul says this needs to be addressed because this is what everybody knows about you. Secondly, in verse 2, as we mentioned earlier, there's a prideful neglect. Verse 2, And ye are puffed up, and you have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Not only was this individual smearing the name of Christ in the mud, but apparently the church at Corinth probably wouldn't have put it this way, but the church at Corinth had gotten to a place to where they just completely had lacked any concern for the glory of Christ. They had gotten to the place to where they forgot this is His body, this is not our body. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe the guy that was involved in this sin, maybe he was a well-liked figure. I'm not sure. We don't know. We could just speculate. Whatever the reason was, they decided the best thing they could do was just ignore it. Well, here's the reality. If this really is a church that is being built by Christ, and if this church belongs to Christ, then at best, we're stewards for a short season of where we are. In other words, we are managing the church on Christ's behalf. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says that a, that a good steward must be found faithful. So you can't ignore Christ and be faithful to Christ at the same time, whether we're talking about a body or whether we're talking about an individual. If we're going to be a good steward of the church that we've been placed in, that means we've got to be faithful to do the hard things. As a matter of fact, it especially means we have to be faithful to do the hard things. You know, it's not really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that we can do them, but it's not really all that hard to do things that we get to celebrate and rejoice in, is it? It's really not. I mean, we, we believe that, you know, a candidate for baptism must be someone who shows evidence of conversion. Well, there's sometimes some, some awkwardness to that as you're trying to have conversations with folks and you're trying to discern that, but, but by and large, that's not that hard. 
It's not that hard to keep that standard. We may misjudge it sometimes, but there's no real awkwardness to that. It's a conversation or two or three, but no one's mourning over that. No one's family's upset about that. It's a whole nother thing to come to the point to where we, we, we recognize that someone that we've loved and someone that we've had hope for has essentially hardened their heart toward Christ, hardened their heart toward the church, and something needs to be done about it. That's a whole other thing. If we're going to be faithful stewards, we're going to have to be engaged in both. And I'm thankful that long before I ever showed up, this was a church that practiced church discipline. And so as Ephesians 3.21 tells us, our goal above anything else must be the glory of Christ, which means that we are managing under His directives. So, a common report, a, uh, a prideful response. Verse 3, Paul lays out a faithful response to what's happening here. In verse 3, Paul says, For I verily as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done, that hath so done this deed. In other words, Paul says, I'm not even there and I know what to do. I'm just hearing about it. And I'm hearing about it from so many people that I know it's true and I already know what you ought to do. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says a faithful response in this scenario is to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, he says a couple of things about it. Number one, verse four says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, do this. You know what that means? It means that this is something that should be done on his behalf and it's something that's being done under his authority. Once again, we've, we said this earlier, it's not something we came up with. It's something that he has called the church to be active in. And so when you do this, this is something that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is as far as just a cultural understanding of Jesus and Jesus's love and Jesus's tolerance and Jesus's, you know, all these other things. You give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus and that's a faithful thing. Brothers and sisters, it is equally faithful to excommunicate someone in the name of Jesus who has departed from their profession of faith and their commitment to the church. Now that seems odd, but that's biblical. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you do this. What is it? Well, again, you deliver this one over. Now there's some nuts and bolts to this as far as how it's done. Look in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. starting in verse 15. This is Jesus here. This is, this is one of the reasons why we can do this in the name of Jesus. Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen and a publican. Now, here Jesus is going through this three-step process as far as church discipline goes. 
says, if your brother trespass against you, then you go to him on his own. You talk to him. You try to labor with him. And you know what? If you repent, you've gained a brother. And that's that. But if you go and you labor, and this is not a, you know, sometimes people have taken this and uh, have taken it as these are three different events. No, it's not three different events. It's three different stages uh, of, 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 of the process. So you may go to your brother five, six, seven times in stage one of this process. It's not a one-time meeting and you throw up your hands and move on. But after you've come to the conclusion, the individual that you're laboring with has made it clear that they're not interested in what you have to say, he says, then you bring one or two other people with you. And then when that goes unheeded, then you bring it to the church. And if the individual's unwilling to hear the church, then you let him be unto thee as a heathen or a publican. It just simply means you let him be as an unbeliever. Okay? Unbelievers have no place in being a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's, it's, it's a, um, it's, it's one of the, um, foundational, um, practices that we, and foundational convictions that we've had as far as believers' baptism. We would never bring an unbeliever in as a member, and we would never allow someone to, or we should never allow someone to maintain membership who has, um, adopted the lifestyle and forsaken their profession and essentially is living as an unbeliever. Now that doesn't mean, and this is something that we ought to think about, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that doesn't mean that everybody that you exclude says, you know what, I've just decided I don't believe in God anymore. Probably very rarely is that going to happen. You treat someone as a believer when they begin to act as a believer. I'm sorry, you begin when they begin to act as an unbeliever. You know that the demons believe in Jesus Christ and they tremble? We'd never take them in as a church member. You want to know why? Because they're not committed to conforming their life to Jesus Christ. That's why. And so someone can be self-deceived in thinking that I believe in God, I'm just not interested in following Christ. That doesn't change anything. If you aren't actively following the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't care what you're saying about your cognitions, you're an unbeliever. That's the way that works. And so when that's the case, Christ says... You treat them as, which is just another way of saying you put them out of the membership. Look in Ephesians chapter 5 as far as a faithful response. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 11 have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Something that should be going on in the life of the church. It's something that should be going on in the normal course of day-to-day life. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 would be another example of that. 2 John 9-10 through would be an example of that. Here's one of the points that I want to make. This is the way it should be. And this is the way it has been as far as this case is concerned. By the time we get to the point of excommunicating someone, they have made it clear that they are uninterested in turning from sin and turning to Christ. In other words, it's not like we found out yesterday that someone was in sin, we had a conversation, and then today decided the best thing we can do is just wash our hands and move on. Now, there are times where that's been the case and that's been done, and that's wrong. That's not a biblical approach. But by the time, at least in in my time here with Isaac, by the time you hear about the fact that you need to be praying for and reaching out to someone... There has been months of labor going on before it ever made it to your ears. 
And then we still give some time when that happens for you to take the opportunity to reach out and to see. And so our hope is to see anyone who's been excommunicated restored. But in the present, we're saying we've done everything that we know how to do, everything that we've been called to do, And so we're trusting that if you do belong to Christ, that He will eventually bring you back. Now sometimes people try to soften what's being communicated in exclusion by saying, you know, we're not making a judgment on you know, where you are. We're not making a judgment on whether or not you're a Christian. We're just, we're just saying that right now you're in a bad spot. You know, you're going to lose some blessings in time by being removed from the church. That's not true. When we exclude someone, we are making a judgment. And that judgment is on our ability to discern whether or not that individual is a genuine believer. And anytime we exclude someone, we've come to the place to where we've discerned that there's not enough evidence for us to be confident that this person is. And to the contrary, there's a ton of evidence that they're not. So it's a serious thing. It's not just a manipulation tool. It's not just some sort of a formality. What we're saying is what you once professed, we don't believe anymore. And it's because you've ceased from responding to reproof, and you've ceased from caring about the glory of Christ in your life. Now, that's not a definitive judgment. Obviously, I just said our hope is that they'll be restored. But that is what's being said. All right, number four, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Number four, so we said a common report, a prideful neglect, a faithful response. Paul gives us a guiding principle. A guiding principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, and as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul points to this guiding principle. And the guiding principle is, do you not know that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Paul would use that principle again in Galatians chapter 5, 6 through 9. He's talking about legalism. He's talking about adding to the work of Christ, finding your righteousness in circumcision. And he's, he's trying to um, encourage the, the Galatians not to put their hopes in the law. And then he goes back to this principle of a little leaven, eleven, the whole lump. You realize if you entertain this idea that you have righteousness with Christ through any works of the law, that's going to affect your entire body. I'm talking about the body of believers there. Christ would tell His disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. They had no idea what He was talking about. And when He began to explain it, it was the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He said, you be careful that their hypocrisy doesn't rub off on you. If you entertain it for a little bit, you can write it down. It will infect the entire body. One of the realities that's highlighted here you say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't inevitably have to end up this way. Well, we have, by divine inspiration in Scripture, the warning several times, be careful, because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. You're not as strong as you think you are. The people surrounding you aren't as strong as you might think they are. A little bit of sin here and a little bit of sin there that's tolerated will eventually affect and infect the entire body. It's the same way, honestly. It's the, this principle is a principle that's used as uh, Paul lays out the qualifications 
of a pastor. Why is it that it's so important that Paul tells Titus and Timothy what they ought to be looking for and what qualifies a man for the ministry? Well, this is just by observation, but you know this already. A congregation, by and large, will take on the tone of the pastor. That's typically the way that works. Doesn't have to, but that's typically the way it works. This is for sure. Over an extended amount of time, I'm not talking about two two or three years, but over an extended amount of time, the congregation will never exceed the spiritual enthusiasm and the spiritual commitment of the pastor. Why? Because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Okay? What I do doesn't just affect me. It affects you too. One of the things that we pointed out when we were in Titus is that the pastor is to be an example. And one of the reasons for that is because what's true for the pastor is also true for you as a member. And so just in case you missed it, what you do doesn't just affect you. It affects the entire body. Okay. The, 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 the idea that I can do my own thing and people ought to leave me alone because I'm not hurting anybody, that's not true when someone's committed themselves to an assembly, to a, to a church. It's not true. Because what you do either is a blessing or an infection to the body. One of the two. And so the guiding principle here is you're either going to cripple or you're going to bless because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so someone might say, okay, well, this is the first time I'm hearing this. I've got some things that need to be addressed. What do I need to do? Well, you need to get some help. You need to repent. Okay? You need to find someone to talk to, whether that's me or someone else that you trust and, and know and love. And, and again, I want to remind you of what I said earlier. By the time we get to where we are today, someone has been labored with for months. This is not the day after we figured out something was happening. The church ought to be a place where sinners are wrestling with sin. But it's not the place where sin becomes your lazy river that you become comfortable and relaxed in and it just takes you wherever it goes. Okay, there's a difference in those two things. So if you're, if you're, if you're in a place right now to where you say, you know what, I've got some things going on and, and I haven't thought about this or I didn't know this, well, you're not in danger of church discipline if you want to fight against your sin. You're in a place where you'll receive encouragement and help in those areas. And I want to encourage you to get it. Number five. Number five, after the guiding principle, a necessary practice. A necessary practice that ought to be going on within the church. And that's verses 9-13. through 13. And just for sake of time, the, the, the practice is this. We ought to be judging those that are within. We ought to be judging those that are within the body. Now, if you think about church discipline, and this whole business of church discipline seems kind of judgmental to you, that's because it is. It is. We're called to use judgment. We're called to use discernment. Based upon a person's words and actions, we are making the judgment that they are no longer interested in walking with us as we seek to follow Christ. That's a judgment. And by the way, if you think it's a negative thing to be judgmental, don't miss the irony that you have to be judgmental to think that we're judgmental. That's the way that works. Okay. So, judging those that are within, that's something that ought to be happening. None of us live on an island. I am, I am not above correction. 
If you see something that's in me, or if you see something that, that uh, a common practice, or, or, or if you have a question about something that, that I've done, or something that I've allowed, or, or anything like that, okay, I'm not above question. You should be asking me those things. You should be holding me accountable. Because I'm not the boss here. Jesus Christ is. And if I'm doing something that violates His Word and His standard, you've got a responsibility to, number one, make a judgment, and then, number two, hold me accountable. That's not to your preference. That's to His Word and vice versa. Same goes with me and you, uh, you and me. So there's a necessary practice that must be happening. Um, Verse 13, God judges those that are without, but we must judge those that are within. And then number six, now we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, because this act of discipline here in 1 Corinthians 1, this man who was called in sexual immorality that was worse than what Paul said even the pagans do. This man was excommunicated. The Corinthians did um, take Paul's instruction and did act upon those. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, starting in verse 5, this is what most people think is in relation to the same scenario that we just got finished talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all, sufficient to such, I'm sorry, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Now, this instruction is coming at the, uh, the, at the news of someone's repentance. We think it's the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so he was excommunicated. He was put out of the church. Apparently, that caused sorrow and grief in this man's heart, and it was apparently a godly sorrow. We talked a couple of Wednesday nights ago about 2 Corinthians chapter 7, about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So worldly sorrow produces death. In other words, worldly sorrow never leads to repentance. It just leads to bitterness and death. But godly sorrow moves toward, presses toward repentance. And what Paul's saying here is, you did put this man out of the church, but he was made sorrowful unto repentance. His sorrow led him to repentance. And so what you ought to do, apparently some time had gone by, the repentance was real, it had been confirmed through action and through um, endurance. And Paul says, you ought to, Show your love. Confirm your love to this man. Bring him back in and let him walk with you as you seek to walk with Christ. And that really is the end goal of church discipline. We can't make that happen, but we can pray for it and we can hope for it. It's that we put someone out that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Satan may destroy the flesh that the Spirit might be saved that they may sorrow unto repentance and that they might come back. So with that being said, as we exercise church discipline, one of the things that we are not saying is we're disgusted with you as a person. We're mad at you. And this is our way of you know, giving you a good kick out the door. Well, Obviously, we're not pleased or excited about what's happening in an individual's life that we have to go through church discipline with, but this is not a, this is not a personal vendetta. This is a personal commitment to being a good steward of the church of Jesus Christ in hopes that He will bring this individual back. 
And so as we talk about these things, it's not to slander, it's not to try to tear down, it's not to insult, it's not to, again, try to air personal frustration, to be a faithful steward of the church that the Lord has given us in hopes that He will work. And so as we move into our members' meeting, I'm going to pray before we do that, but as we move into our members' meeting, this morning has just hopefully just been a reminder of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we, um, Lord, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have um, given us everything pertaining to life and to godliness. We thank you that you have brought us into your church and made us part of your body. And Father, we pray that we would be found good and faithful servants and good and faithful stewards of the church that You've given us. Father, we pray that You would um, bless us um, to always hold this conviction that You are serious about church membership and You are serious about church discipline. I pray that we would be able to do it in a way that does not communicate hatred or, or disgust or some sort of a personal vendetta, but that we would be able to do it in a way that is um, that focuses on and is um, discernible that we are committed to your glory and the good of your body. We pray you would be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.